This is Paul Schneiderman today on the 92nd edition of Sports Untold on Rainier Avenue Radio. My show is known as Sports and Stuff for many years. Now we're doing a little rebranding and it's called Sports Untold, but Sports and Stuff still sounds good. Well, in the 92nd edition of Sports Untold, I have a terrific guest. I had the pleasure of interviewing for the second time. Uh, Mark Patterson. Mark is a, a Northeast Seattle Roosevelt High School, University of Washington legend, former NFL player. He's been an entrepreneur, podcaster, uh, motivational speaker, entrepreneur, mountain climber. I mean, it's the list of what Mark's done is, is very impressive. And Mark just did something that's pretty darn extraordinary. He just climbed Mount Everest. So I'm talking to a guy who, who has now climbed the, the seven major summits and just got back from climbing Mount Everest. So uh, pretty amazing. And Mark was one of the one of my first guests come to my show back in 2017. I think you were on the fourth edition. Now you're on the 92nd edition. So still okay. struggling trying to do this. Well, uh, as I mentioned, you Mark off the air. My assistant Lucius Tenebris and recording engineer is uh, also fascinated by your experience in Mount Everest. So Lucius is going to come here and ask a few questions as well. So we're going to have fun today, Mark. Well, thanks for coming back on Sports Untold on Rainier Avenue Radio. Yeah, thank you so much. I love the intro. I really appreciate that. It means a lot to me. And, um, you know, love talking to Seattle peeps anytime I get a chance. Love it. Well, we, we enjoy chatting with you as well, Mark. Well, Mark, I, we're going to talk heavily about your, your climbing experiences today. But hey, it's a sports show. I want to get a few other questions in, in on, into you. So I have been asking this question to multiple guests the last year and a half or so. Let me give you a couple of the answers. And I want to get the Mark Patterson answer this question. Uh, Dave Grosby answered Floyd Merriweather. Mariners radio broadcaster Dave Sims answered, answered uh, Sandy Koufax. Uh, Softy and Dick Fang, when I interviewed them, answered Tiger Woods. Um, Kenny Anderson, former NBA player, answered Joe Montana. Greg Lewis answered LeBron James. I could give you more answers. One more, uh, Serena Williams, her name came up. Mark, if you could interview or have an extended conversation with a living sports figure, who would it be? Jimmy Connors. Jimmy Connors. Yeah. The tennis player. Yeah. What is about Connors? Um, I hadn't got that answer yet. What is about Jimmy Connors that would fascinate you? You know, I, I just love his intensity and, you know, he's a guy that played into his forties and um, you know, it wasn't too long ago that I saw a special on him where I think he didn't win the U S open in uh, I think it was played in New York, uh, but you know, he made it into the semis and finally just, you know, wore out, but he was just a warrior that just never gave up perseverance. And, you know, this goes way back. This isn't my answer. Like I'm giving you today. I mean, I remember, when um, really my first opportunity after being just buried in the University of Washington Husky football program. And it seemed like I was going to see no light, but I kept chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, chipping away. And finally I got my opportunity and we were playing Michigan um, in the Husky stadium. We found ourselves down by 14 points. And uh, in the fourth quarter, we, we mounted this comeback and then we scored a touchdown with about I don't know, seven minutes to go. We got the ball back with about two minutes to go. We marched down the field and I caught kind of a last second uh, touchdown in the back of the end zone. And, 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 and it's really back then, you know, where I first started to really connect. I don't play tennis. Um, I used to belong to the tennis club, as you know. Um, I don't play tennis uh, and I don't really have a passion about tennis, but I have a passion about people who push it. And, and it's always about what's next, what's around the corner. And they're not looking back. It's everything is about going forward and whatever, no matter whatever happens, they don't give up. 
Mark, you know, one thing I think is really neat about your answer is you're you're not a tennis guy, as you just mentioned, but Jimmy Connors is the living sports figure you most likely want to have a chat with. So I think it's really yeah. neat that you're kind of going outside your own box and picking Jimmy Connors with that question. Yeah, let me just, yeah, go ahead. Me, because I think it's really important. Um, I, I, you know, I keep saying this whole thing about um, if you're not growing, you're dying. And, and I think that's just really true and just in life and, and whether, you know, it's business um, or sports or hobby or whatever you want to call it, it's, you know, what are those things that are going to make you grow? And the only way to me you can really grow is by finding um, mentors out there that have done it in some other capacity because everybody has their own way of doing it. And the kind of a common theme with me is success leaves clues. And if you don't, you know, so much time we spent like just so immersed in what what, what, I can't figure it out. I'm trying to get there. And if I could just, and you, you know, your own little orbit and, and by really taking a time out and looking at some other people and either talking to them, reading a book, hearing a podcast, whatever, you know, it's just a, it's just a, it's a fast track towards where you can take yourself and whatever you're trying to do. Great advice. I, and I, I assume you give a lot of that advice to your motivational seminars. Well, anyway, I like the Jimmy Connors answer a lot. All right, Mark, um, here's kind of my follow-up question. Uh, I can give you a couple of names if you want. Who's a deceased sports figure in history you would have loved to have interviewed and had an extended conversation with? Sure, Edmund Hillary. He was the first guy to actually summit Mount Everest. Edmund Hillary. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's a great Hillary. name. Yeah. Um, was he an American? Uh, no, the, 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 it was interesting because if you go back in, in, um, in Everest history, and I spent a lot of time doing this because, again, success leaves clues. I want to understand, you know, what they were doing, how they got up there. And it blows my mind that in 1953, um, both he and Tenzing Norway actually summited um, the top of Mount Everest. They were British. Obviously, Tenzing Norway was from Nepal. Uh, he was a lead Sherpa. But um, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary was a uh, UK, a British citizen. And uh, the British back in that day, in earlier, um, decade before, they were sending gigantic expedition parties over there to try to figure this out, to become the first country, so to speak, um, to actually summit the highest mountain in the world. Um, and so, you know, if I could step back in time and interview him when I was there, I went into a number of different museums. I saw these artifacts. I mean, you know, I had all this gear on and oxygen masks and big puffy suits, and I had all the right stuff. They were going up in tweed suits, right? You know? <laughs> like, like you're wearing your, your your jacket today. You look sharp. I mean, that's what they look like, and they're at, you know at twenty nine thousand feet. It's insane what they were wearing going up and down that mountain. What a great answer. And I, I, I asked you a dumb question if he was an American when I heard Sir Edmund Hillary. But, but what yeah. a what a fascinating answer. I'm going to add him to my list of of answers that question i've got muhammad ali got in babe ruth what what a great answer well mark i'm going to get into a few other uh non-climbing sports subjects because it's always fun to talk about about all sorts of uh subject matters sports included um but i want to i'm going to ask this is kind of a kind of a maybe an odd first question about your mount everest experience but because i know you're going to be getting thousands from different people but but mark what what would be the first question you would ask somebody who just completed a climb mount everest well, I'm getting a range of questions and you're asking me the question, not what others are asking, but you know, it, it seems like there's kind of two, two distinctive uh, questions that keep coming up with very different answers or they didn't know. Um, one was um, when I tell them I was, I was on Mount Everest for uh, over two months and 
people are blown away. And then the question is, well, why are you there for two months? And it's really answering that question by saying, you know, number one, you are going up and down the mountain constantly at very high altitude to build up red blood cells and red blood cells are the things that carry oxygen around your body so that you can survive and you can make it. In my case, it really came into play big time the night after I summited and while I was coming down off the mountain. And then number two, the reason why you're there for two months is because their jet stream sits on top of the mountain blowing 200 miles per hour. And, wow. it, 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 and, and so the way that the planet works is two weeks. It's not 14 days. It could be seven days. It could be three days. Um, like it was in 2019, when you saw that big lineup on the mountain. Um, and it could be a little bit longer. You just never know, but the jet stream rises and allows say passage technically, theoretically to get up and get down off that mountain. Um, and then it also does the same thing in, in the fall. And so we're going up and down and up and down and up and down and building red blood cells and working our way through the ice fall and all these different things um, while waiting for some time in May to go for the top. And so it's that's a real process. It's a real process. So that's why, so that, that's one question, you know, why are you there so long? And then the other question is, what was it like when you got on the top? And so many people, you know, the equate it to like when I've, been very fortunate to be, you know, the guy that catches the last second touchdown and the crowd goes crazy. And what was that like? That was amazing, right? And you're up and the crowd's going crazy and you're on TV and all these amazing things. And it's, it wasn't like that for me because, you know, it was, it was, it, 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 I struggled a lot. We can get into that later. I struggled a lot on the mountain. And by the time I got up there and I sat down, I was like, oh God, I've got halfway to go still. I mean, I was only you know, I still had to go all the way down and going down is almost way more dangerous than going up because um, you're so tired, you're so spent and the, uh, the margin of error is so thin because it's so flipping steep and you're looking straight down 15,000 feet at Tibet. And if you slip and you fall, you're done. You're stepping over dead bodies and everything. And so that's kind of the surprising next answer because they're waiting for this. It was the most amazing thing I've ever done. And it was just like, oh God, you know, now I got to go the other way. Well, I, I, you just gave me so much information. I, I may actually, know you're a podcaster yourself. I'm, I, you were the first one I've ever tried that type of question. What type of question, you know, would you, would you ask someone for, based on your experience? So I just love the, the answers you gave and the questions you gave. Cause you just, I think you just helped me get, get some, get some more ideas. Cause I, I frankly a little overwhelmed talking to a guy just climbed out Everest. And I, 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 I wanted you to kind of start with, with the first answers and questions. Well, yeah. And, and to your point too, uh, Paul is there's, there's, you know, it, it's different from going up to a local mountain like Mount Rainier, for example, which, you know, anybody, if they wanted to, you have to get in shape and everything. Um, but, you know, it's a, basically it's a three day climb. And, and there are some things that you need to know. And then certainly people have died on the mountain, but it's a whole different level on Mount Everest when you're going up to 29,032 feet. Oh, sure. And, you know, we started as a, as a whole, there's, there's all these other wild cards that came into play this year. Um, one was COVID and we can get into that later if you'd like, but basically a big COVID outbreak hit. And then the other thing which hit before and after in May was a cyclone, which cyclone is basically the same thing as a hurricane, but on that side of the world. And, and so with that came amazing amount of high winds and tremendous amount of moisture, which 
lower temperatures, it's rain and higher temperatures, it's snow. And that's what a lot of people run into. So only 30%. So if there was 400, there was probably a little bit less than 400 kilometers this year. And of those 400, maybe 120, something like that made it. Um, so it's just between not picking the right day and we just happen to get lucky and pick the right day um, to a lot of people being flown off the mountain because of COVID. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was a tough go for a lot of people and I'm just sitting here so blessed and thankful that I got that thing over with and somehow or another, I was able to get myself up there and back down. No, it's so, so great. You, you did it and you came back home safely as well. Hey, Mark, I, I read something that you, you were partially blind in one eye at one time during the climb. Yeah, Can you share yeah. a little bit about that with us? Yeah. So, you know, when, when you decide to go for the top, um, it's not like you pop out of your car and like, hey, let's go climb this mountain, come back down. It's really um, projecting what the weather is going to be like based on, the, the, in our case, the cyclone that was blowing, based on the jet stream that kept bouncing on and off the mountain, based on when we're going to have a clear day to go for it. So you don't run into that in the thin air mess that those guys ran into back in 1996 with the superstorm and everybody dying. And so um, the, 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 so fast forward and clock, um, we had projected actually that we we're going to try to go forward around the 20th. Well, um, that day was a mess. And so we stayed in our tents in high winds on camp three. And, and then we moved up to, um, camp four, which is high camp, 26,500 feet. Um, um, on the 22nd, I, I arrived in the camp around 6 PM and we woke up at about midnight with the plan of leaving around 12:30. And as I was getting out of my tent and getting everything, you know, scrambling and getting stuff ready, uh, uh, there were high winds, 45, 50 mile per hour, blowing left to right, and there was all these little ice particles. And these ice particles were pounding my face on the left, and and then my eye was just getting thrashed. And I was trying to pull kind of my hoodie over and protect it but it just wasn't working. It's pitch black. You've got a headlamp on and you're going straight up the mountain. And, um, and so within an hour, I got snow blind in my left eye. And when you're snow blind, it just means you literally can't see out of your both wow. eyes or in my case, my left eye. And where that really came into to play is further up on the Hillary step. And that's about the last third of the mountain. And as you're going there, it's getting super steep the entire time you're on fixed lines. And unlike other mountains where you and I might be tethered together, you're tethered to the mountain. So you have a harness around your waist. You've got a probably a three foot cord with a carabiner on the end of it. And what you're doing is you're reaching down and you're, you're clipping into this fixed line that are about hundred uh, uh, yard intervals screwed into the ice with ice screws. And so you're secure. The, the only problem with that is that there's not only do you have your one fixed line but there were four or five other fixed lines too from, you know, 2012 past expeditions that were all frayed. And so I was having a really hard time seeing because I didn't have the right depth perception of clipping in. And again, as I said before, when I got up on the, on the Hillary step, it's really rocky and it's super steep and you have a very small area to be going up. And as you're making your way to the, to the summit. And so I had to double check, triple check to make sure that my, I was actually clipped into the right rope. And what complicated all this is my Sherpa, who was with me most of the day, 
um, couldn't speak English and he didn't understand what I was saying. I kept pointing to my eye and he thought, oh, yeah, that's great. You're having a great time. He didn't understand I was, I was going through all this struggle. Yeah, just amazing. It was, it was beyond just having no vision, one eye, all these other multi-factors that were going on. Paul Schneierman, host of Sports Untold on Rainier Avenue Radio with Mark Pattison, who just climbed Mount Everest and uh, the first NFL player to, to climb all seven summits, right, Mark? Well, close. Yeah, no, no. So the whole goal going back, you know, 10 years is going through a rough patch. And, you know, the whole thing was like, I need to pull myself out of it. And so I just one night I was walking around the block and I was just like, you know, I'm done being stuck and I'm going to do something about it. And so I said to myself, I, I gotta, I can't just have some little goal. I've got to do something extraordinary. And so what came up to me was, especially being from Seattle and you look out your window every day and you, and you see, um, um, and you see uh, Mount Rainier, um, spent a lot of time in the Cascades. It's just like, you know, there's been so many amazing mountaineers. I'm going to see if any NFL guys ever climbed the seventh summit. So I went after it. So as it all turned out, um, in uh, 2019, uh, there was another gentleman um, who actually played at Oregon State. And um, in 2009, he had completed the seven summits. Um, and so it was sort of a race. It sort of wasn't, he wasn't going on it with the same vigor, but he'd been doing it for a number of years. He's maybe 10, 15 years older than my, myself. His name is Craig Hanneman. Anyways, the, the long and short out of it is when somebody disclosed this to me um, uh, about a year ago, uh, I had decided like, I'm going to double down on this goal and I'm going to do two things. One, I'm going to um, climb Mount Everest. I'm going to come down, crawl in my tent for a few hours, and then go up and climb Lhotse, which is right next to it. And that's the fourth highest mountain in the world. And I ran into so many problems, running out of oxygen, not eating for 18 hours, being exposed, uh, being snow blind, everything else that as I was coming down and I was going through a lot of like, you know, I was, I was to the edge to the point of today, Mark doesn't die conversation with me. I mean, you don't have those conversations with yourself wow. that often. Wow. And, and I was just like, if I go for Lhotse at this point in time in the game, um, I will not make it up this mountain. And having stepped over dead bodies and be sleeping next to one six feet from my tent at high camp, 26,500, I knew I'd probably be another statistics. And at that point, it was just like, who cares? So I'm the second guy, second NFL player. We're still just he, uh, Craig and I, who are the only guys who have climbed it. I doubt there's going to be many more that will attempt it just because of the NFL body and the shape and everything else and the motivation. But um, I'm just proud to have done what I've done and, you know, being that in that select. Absolutely. Uh, very, very, very select group. Let me ask you a, a question. I'm going to have Lucius come back and ask, come in here and ask a question or two, because he wants to meet you and get a question or two in uh -huh. here. Um, I'm curious, Mark, about the timing of when you decide to do this. And with, with this worldwide pandemic going on, was there any side of you that would just wait till 2022 or 2023 or some other time this decade do Mount Everest. Tell us about your decision to do it when you did it in May of 2021. Well, let's go back and, and the, the chronology of what I was trying to do is do a mountain every year. And I thought it would be seven mountains, seven years. And in 2017, I got pushed back on Denali. So I had to go back and redo Denali after making that. And we ran into minus 80 degree weather and all this stuff. And so I had to redo that one. And then um, in, in early 2019, in January, I was down in Antarctica and I climbed a mountain called Vincent Massif. I was able to summit that mountain successfully and then come back. And then the goal was to go to Mount Everest in 2020. Um, I had been training hard for it. 
uh, I'd been going, you know, cuckoo in terms of all the things I need to do to, to make that happen. And then I actually had packed my bags. I live, live here in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I packed my bags um, to drive out to Los Angeles, see my daughters, and then from there launch to Kathmandu. Uh, this was mid-March 2020. If we go back, you know, a year and some months, um, we all remember that that's about when COVID hit and the world started breaking apart in late March. Uh, the world, in fact, did shut down um, and my uh, Everest expedition aspirations got pushed into 2021. And so answering your question, the thing that I was ner most nervous about, and I had to squeak by to make this happen, um, I probably entered a kind of a gray area how this all played out. But my biggest concern was not necessarily, this is, goes back to like February of this year, was not necessarily about what was going to go on on Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Everest but was I gonna get vaccinated? That was the thing that was most pressing because I got the, the, the Pfizer vaccine and to get the Pfizer vaccine here in Idaho and well, every place else, you know, it's a get the vaccine and then wait a month. Right. So I was still for my age and category and all this stuff, I didn't fit into the box of when people in my category could actually get vaccinated. So anyways, I made that work and I got over there and sure enough, we had some guys, we started with, um, 21 people in our expedition party. And from the first day we got there, within a day, we took uh, um, COVID test. And one of the um, climbers, so unfortunate, um, uh, got COVID. And so he didn't make a bit of the 21 started, including this guy, only 10 in our party actually summited the mountain. 10 of the original 21 did. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. Hey, Lucius, come over here. I, I, um, you, I think you had a fun question for Mark. I'm going to come back with some more questions, Mark. But let me get Lucius in here. Yeah. Lucius. Hi, Lucius. It's nice to meet you. Yeah. Are you um, a rapper or anything? My what? Are you a rapper? <laughs> I am a poet, but I'm not a rapper. At least not yet. Anybody um, with a name like Lucius needs to be a needs to be a rapper. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I get right. a lot of compliments for my name. But I know you mentioned that there was um you saw dead bodies on there mm -hmm. on the on the mountain. Um I'm curious, how was it just people that were a part of your team or did you see other people that you didn't know? And and uh when you did, how did you how did it make you feel? Well, okay. So no, there's nobody from our team that died, you know, up on the mountain. So that was, that's the good news. Um, there's, there's a gentleman, uh, American, unfortunately, that died. There are actually two, one British and one American that died around the, the 12th of May. There was a small window that opened and then it shut again uh, just after the 15th of May. Um, but uh, this particular person had died of exhaustion. They were laying in a tent at 26,500, which is camp four. And they just happened to be next to my tent. And it was, it was pretty eerie to see that. Um, and then, you know, it was, I knew what I was walking into on this one, but up on the Hillary step, uh, my tent mate in Antarctica, Don Cash, uh, had passed away in 2019. He got to the top, raised his hand, fell over and died. And very unfortunate. Um, and so there he was laying there. And in and, and answering your last question, what's it like? It, it, you know, when you're here on basically earth at sea level and you're, you're having these, you and I are having this conversation, I'm having this conversation with Paul and things, it's almost like going to war where 
the rules change when you're there and bullets are flying, flying, flying by you. I've never been to war, but that's what I, I, I just, I've heard so many stories about. It's just, it's just a different reality. And you, you're in such a zone of self-preservation when you're at, you know, essentially 28,900 feet and you're trying to navigate your way. In my case, I was snow blind. I hadn't eaten um, anything. I was just, I was relying on little hard uh, uh, candies um, and, and had very little energy. And, uh, you know, my whole time was just get yourself up, clip in, keep going. And, you know, it was very little time for empathy, even though I'm sitting here now saying, you know, what a tragedy it was for anybody to have to die on a mountain. Wow. Wow. That, yeah, I can imagine just in survival mode at that point. Mm-hmm. Would you mind if I asked you one last question? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, you said, you said that going down the mountain was in some ways harder than going up the mountain. I'm curious, would you say that going down the mountain was the hardest part or was there another part of the trip that you found to be the most difficult? There were just multiple levels, you know, to that question. And, um, you know, there were some days, uh, there was one particular day that we were going from camp one to camp two, you're going up the Western Coombe and it's, it's, it's riddled with um, crevasses everywhere. And so you have to stay on this very narrow path, you're clipped in. But it was smoking hot, and even though if there were the, the ambient temp- temperature might have been, you know, zero or something, all the sun bouncing off the snow coming back at you, and what we were wearing just made it smoking hot to get from camp one to camp two. It's a gradual uphill, and then going through that the, the Kumba um, icefall is literally terif- terrifying. Um, you know, you're talking about a 2,000 foot gain from 17.5 to 19.5. You're talking about going through a moving um, uh, glacier of 30 foot high ice columns that are collapsing constantly. Um, Every single time I went through there, I went through there five times. Um, Every single time I went through, there was always a new route. We had to climb over, you know, 40 to 60 foot ice walls. We had to repel off them. Um, People, a lot of people have died in there. Um, You know, avalanches coming down um, on, on summit day. Normally I'm a super strong climber that day. I wasn't strong. I hadn't eaten in three days. And, and it was just, you know, when you're at 29,000 feet, it's just the, the, every single time you take a step, even with an oxygen mask on, it's like you're doing a hundred yard dash sprint, you know, you're mm-hmm. breathing, you're <gasps> yeah, up and down, you know, you take another step and, and you, you have to pause and then take another step and take a pause. And then, you know, you kind of put all those factors together. And when you're coming down, it's when most people get hurt because you're so exhausted and your legs collapse and you trip or something. And so really staying focused in on what I was trying to do. And the other thing that really happened that played um, a major, could have been a, a, a deadly outcome for me is that I ran out of oxygen just under the balcony, probably at 27.5. And my Sherpa was 200 yards plus down below me and I couldn't get him to stop. And so I was just gasping for air. And it's a it's a pretty scary feeling when you have all those things going against you, snow blind, no energy, you know, you're going down, your legs are sore from the front because it's so steep and you have no oxygen at that height. I mean, that's where airplanes fly, right? Wow. <laughs> so um, anyways, it's, I, I'm lucky in a lot of ways that everything played out the way it played out uh, in terms of getting down safely. Wow. I'm, no, I'm, I apologize. I just, another question just came to my mind. Would you mind if I asked one more? Yeah. Ask as many as you want. Absolutely. If is 
for someone who's for someone who's looking who's interested in, in climbing Mount Everest themselves, mm-hmm. um, but hasn't started training yet and hasn't really gotten into it, what would what would you say to them? There is no shortcuts to the top. Number one. Number two is we had some some we had three gentlemen that tried this express package, which meant that they hadn't done a lot of climbing, a little climbing, not a lot. And they, they came a month late and, and how they compensated for that was they had tents that they would go and they'd sleep in that would emulate them being at 22,000 feet um, just because there was less oxygen in those tents. And all three of those people did not make them up, did not summit. Um, mm. uh, two of them quit along the way, two weeks into it. Um, and one guy just quit on the mountain. So um, like anything you do in life, like my journey to the NFL, I didn't go from little league. Um, Paul knows my neighborhood in, in, in Seattle, in Northeast Seattle and uh, LVR, Lowhurst View Ridge. And you don't go um, from little league to the NFL in one jump. It takes all these iterative steps and just like business, you know, it just takes years and years to learn a business acumen to learn how to do certain things and do it the right way. And just like mountaineering, you know, that's why I did seven summits. I actually have yeah, the seven summits I did. I, I was on Denali twice um, and I did Kilimanjaro uh, twice down in, in Africa. And, and then beyond that, there's all the local mountains around here. I've done, you know, Mount Whitney down in California, the highest mountain there. I've done Mount Rainier a couple of years ago. I've been on Bora, which is the highest mountain in Idaho. So, there's a lot of mountains. I mean, I'm on the mountain almost every single day and it's just training my mind and training my body to, to be able to endure certain things when bad things happen, which they do all the time on, on these various mountains. Wow. Wow. That's, that's really inspiring. That, that, that makes me almost makes me want to start climbing mountains. Well, you know, I, I probably have been on the top of, there's a local mountain outside of Seattle, Washington and Issaquah uh, called Tiger Mountain. And it's no exaggeration to say I've been on top of that mountain at least 150 times when I was living up in Seattle. And so that's year round, every single week, um, winter, rain, you know, spring, summer, sunny weather, bad weather, every, it just, if I said I was going this week, I was going that week and nothing would stop me. And that's what you have to go through to be committed to the process. Wow. Definitely. Wow. Thank you. I really appreciate your answers. Absolutely. Great questions from Lucius and great uh, fascinating answers from Mark. Hey, Mark, w- was there anything fun about climbing Mount Everest? I mean, hearing yeah. all this, was there anything fun about it at all? You know, uh, kind of like the uh, like an NFL or a college uh, locker room. At the end of the day, it's a lot of the people. You know, I got to interact with so many different, the Sherpa, um, the way that they live life in Nepal. Um, I was blessed three or four times by these various holy lamas. Um, I got to sit in their ceremonies, um, our, our mountaineering expedition team, you know, they're all fascinating people. And like I said, we started with 21 and we kind of got down to the core 10 or 11 towards the end. And we all have something in common. Everybody's, you know, a go-getter and kind of an alpha dog. And it's just fun to mix it up with those people and, and really learn from others. And, and, and also, you know, for me personally, I've, I've, I grew up a, a fan of the Whitaker brothers, Jim uh, and, sure. and Luke. Jim was the first American to climb uh, Mount Everest in 1973. And, um, you know, at Vister's, I've become friends with all these people. 
and just to kind of be in the presence of some of these people, other other phenomenal mountaineers uh, that happen to be on that mountain at that particular time, to become friends with them and climb with them and interact with them. Would you ever climb any of the other the seven summits you did ever again? Uh, I, let me say it this way: I, I you know, coming up that mount, mountain, it, it was a it was a tough experience. You know, as it got towards the end there, I mean, it's just 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 the, going back to your first question about you know what's a common question you get? It's just how long you're there. So it's just it's an endurance game. Even if you didn't climb to the top, it's an endurance game just to be anywhere with having no luxuries of life for over 60 days, you know, a shower and good food and, and a warm bed and a pillow and all those things and sleeping in minus, you know, minus zero temperatures every, every night, um, it gets old. And so um, I just don't want to suffer. Right. Um, you know, that that's a game of suffering and your body, once you get up to the death zone, your, your body's, you're actually dying. And I could feel my body eating away at myself and I lost, uh, 25 pounds. And for me, that's a lot. And so again, I'm, I'm just really interested in, in, and I love climbing. Um, I'm up in the mountains again, most days and, and, and doing that and coming back and having a nice warm meal and, uh, you know, the, the bed and all that stuff that that's what I'm more interested in right now. You got time for a little sports, some, some sports questions, Mark. Let's Can do I, it. Okay, great. Yeah. Great. Um, I want to get your take on the NCAA case that came down with the U S Supreme court and I'm not looking for a technical legal analysis. Just kind of want to get your general take. Justice Kavanaugh had a fascinating concurring opinion. Um, just a little quick background. NCAA, the Supreme Court ruled that the NCAA cannot limit educational-related benefits. Kavanaugh went further in his concurring opinion. He wrote that he believes all restrictions on compensating college athletes could violate antitrust law. Mark, what do you think of the idea of paying college athletes at some point? Where are you on that, Mark? I, I think it's a great idea. I'm not quite sure how you do it, but I just know this, and this is the same. We had the exact same argument 30 years ago, and I'll tell you why. Is that um, uh, I was fortunate to be on, on scholarship, and 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 I can remember myself and Hugh Millen and Jim Mora. We were all lived together, and we had a total check. We'd go down to the uh, Tubby Graves office, and that's where you pick up your check every month. And our check was for three hundred thirty-six dollars and eighty-four cents. That's what it was. And if you can imagine that, um, living off $336.84, um, and that's to cover your rent, and that's to cover any other bills you have that come associated with the electrical bill, and also going out and getting, getting something to eat. And so the disparity between the amount of money, especially now, that uh, the NCA makes off the tournaments, off the bowl games, off all the TV rights and everything else, proportionate to what they actually can can give and support these college, it's, it's just been so out of whack. So I don't know because not every player is the same. So, you know, I don't know if it's right that that on a team, if there's, if there's uh, 85 scholarships and some are freshmen and they're working their way up um, and some are the stars and they're actually playing, that they get more money than the guys who aren't, or you just set a tier that is enough that people aren't going to be tempted to take outside money from donors, which is illegal. Um, and, and it also keeps these people from feeling like they can stay in school longer and they don't make bad decisions. But, you know, I was restricted from working. So if that's another thing that people don't understand. So beyond just what you're saying, they were telling me that during the spring, during the winter, during the, during the fall, 
I could not go work any place. The only time I could work is when school was not in session, when I was not actually actively taking classes. So for me, that would be during the summer. So I went up to Alaska. I was on a fishing boat for two months. I've worked in a lumberyard for three years, you know, but I could only do that during certain times. And so once again, I was always in this cash star position. I remember going over to Hawaii on a recruiting trip. And, and so they were whining and dining me and it was, you know, you're on the beach and it was amazing and all that kind of stuff. And kind of towards the end, I said, so let me ask you this. So now it's, you know, we're done and I want to go home for Christmas. How does that work? And he goes, well, we put you to work, you know, for a week at a construction site and then you make enough money to pay for your ticket and you fly home. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. Right. So I'm going to go to UW, right. Where I can just drive home. It's only four miles from my house. And that's what I did. But there was so many guys that came from uh, East LA, Central LA that were not in the same situation I was in um, that were always struggling. And we had them over to our house, you know, frequently for, for, for various meals to compensate that. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for figuring out a way to equal the playing field a little bit more. You know, Mark, you brought up a lot of points there. And, and Kavanaugh actually alluded to this in his concurring opinion, and it's the highest court of the land, that it could get complicated with Title IX issues. Does a female rower get paid the same as a star quarterback? Those are complicated issues, aren't, aren't they, Mark? Well, they are. And this has always been the, it, you know, it always runs downhill. And this has been the, the argument for, you know, forever, which is essentially that you want to have as many sports as possible. Um, and you want to have them equal on both sides. But the reality is typically with the exception of maybe Kentucky or Duke, maybe there's a few others in there, but almost um, every program football funds, everything else. And when football's not working, and it's not going downhill, then it's hard. So again, you know, how do you make that, you know, equal? And that's why I'm, I'm uh, in my opinion, if you can just up the bar, pro rata across the board, it's going to be a much better system. Paul Schneiderman of Sports Untold with uh, UW great Mark Pattison and, and Climber. Mark's kindly giving me a few more minutes today. We're just talking sports. Um, hey, Mark, uh, you're a big UW guy, and, and there's been some transitions to UW football program. You like the Jimmy Lake uh, coaching uh, situation so far? Yeah, I mean, I would say so far, you know, you got to give everybody a break. And, you know, there's it's not that often one when, um, you know, your assistant coaches rise to a program like this without actually bringing in another big name like Chris Peterson, you know, when he came. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. And, and he seems like he's a fantastic, you know, mind. He's got a great ability to recruit. His defenses have been, you know, amazing. And, um when you're the head guy, it's a different set of, of skills. You know, you got to be able to be a great coach. So that's obviously the first one. You have to be able to be a great recruiter. You have to be able to interact with the, the alumni and make sure that they continue to donate. And you have to be able to get along well with upper campus. And so does he have all those skill sets? I don't know. Um, but I'm certainly here to root him on until something goes south. And hopefully it doesn't. And, you know, all these, these teams you know, they all go in cycles. And so hopefully you can keep, you know, the UW on the right trajectory. And it's going to be a tough game against Michigan back in Ann Arbor, I think opening up here. So we'll see how it all goes. I'm going to try to make that game in September. Uh, Chris, Pe your, Chris Peterson, do you like Chris Peterson? Yeah. A fan of Chris, know. Chris. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. No, go. Oh, good. Good. Um, hey, uh, Mark, we got a couple more questions if you don't mind. Uh, do you like this, this idea of a 16 team NCAA championship tournament in football? I, you know, I actually do. 
Um, and I and I do because so much of everything today is so top heavy with SEC in particular, right? And a little bit of the ACC. Um, and I just, you never know when people are gonna get hot, right? And when, and, and when there's a coach's poll, BCS they call it now, where you have kind of the top heavy teams, you know, up front and they don't weigh the, especially the Pac-12 as much as they do some of these other conferences I think it gives everybody an equal chance, no different than the NCAA basketball tournament, right? And so to have more teams with the opportunity for a uh, Rocky type story to me is really exciting. I, I tend to agree with you. I'm going to gently challenge you and play devil's advocate for a second. I had Keith Gilbertson on my show a couple of years ago. I'm sure you, you know Keith, the former Husky oh, yeah. coach. Yeah. Right. I asked Keith about the idea a couple of years ago about taking the top six giving the top two a bye and having like a 16 tournament he didn't like that case of the opinion that more is not necessarily better what what would be your your take on Keith's perspective from a couple of years ago yeah i mean i maybe 16 is too much uh and and I, I guess when you said that initially to me i was just kind of thinking of the idea that it's more than just the four right so it's, it's, I don't know what the exact number is. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's 10, maybe it's, you know, 16. I don't know. But I think having more of a tournament where you give all these different schools, I mean, you see it in baseball. It just happened right now with Mississippi state and Texas. I think they're in the, the finals, um, you know, soccer, they do it that way. Women's softball, they do it that way. Uh, you know, the basketball, obviously they do it that way. Volleyball, they do it that way. So why don't they do it in, in, in football? That just seems odd to me. So having kind of a bigger pool and giving people the opportunity, even though their, their odds might be long, um, I think is a fun idea. Just, you know, it just engages more the fan to let your school potentially get in the tournament and have a run at it. Sure. Look how successful the, the March Madness basketball term has been giving a lot of these smaller name schools a chance to compete. So, Hey, Mark, may I have another question too, if you don't mind, Paul Striving on sports on Tall Terrain or Avenue radio with Mark Patterson. Um, I, I read that you had an LA Raiders hat. I'm sorry, a Vegas Raiders hat or a shirt. There was something you had referencing the Vegas Raiders uh, during your Mount Everest climb. Uh, feel free to share about that a little bit, but here's my question for you, Mark. Do you feel uh, bad that Oakland does not have an NFL team anymore? Uh, I think Oakland, you know, look at, at the end of the day, it's a crime for the community. And there's so many vendors um, as we found when the Sonics left uh, our great city of Seattle, um, there's a huge void. And, and so for that reason, you know, I'm bummed for the community and I think the Raiders will all, always be associated with Oakland. But if you've ever been down to the Oakland Coliseum, they had so many opportunities to make that right. And what all these these teams um, around the league have, need, require uh, to stay financially viable is to have sweet looking stadiums uh, like Quest, where the Seahawks play with with owners boxes and luxury boxes and all the bells and whistles that go along with it and that stadium down there is it's a baseball stadium you know and it's old concrete with none of those things and that was the, the major reason and, and if you go back in history 
you know, Al Davis originally took that team down to Los Angeles with the promise that same thing was going to happen in LA. It didn't until it's now happened finally after all these years. So they moved back to Oakland because once again, they made those promises that would all happen and they didn't make those things happen. And now Mark Davis, Al Davis's son, um, finally got a great offer. And I've been over there and I've seen that stadium and it looks like a gigantic spaceship. It is cool. And um, I think it's going to be a huge hit because you've still got a lot of passionate fans um, that love the Raiders that will drive three, four hours over from LA. Um, no big deal. And then all just the corporate uh, corporations coming in um, with their different weekend um, uh, conferences and everything like that, that they can tie in packages to go to the Raider game. So I think it's going to be a wild success over there. And you can see with the hockey team right now already, which is across the street, that venue. I mean, when you go to that game, which I've been to the Knights, and it looks like a circus Soleil show, you know, they've really done the Vegas part to it. So um, I think it's going to be a great answer to your question. The Raiders have been over the moon kind to me. Um, they've really kicked in a really strong um, alumni um, department. And uh, not only did they throw and contribute money to a cause uh, for organization here called higher ground. My daughter has epilepsy. Right. And so we came together and we formed this, this campaign called Amelia's Everest. And, and uh, not only did they throw money towards that, but they sent me huge flags and shirts and hats and, and all kinds That's of great. stuff. And I hung on the side of my tent at base camp, every space camp. So everybody knew where I was and the Raiders. I mean, I literally took up the whole entire side of the tent. It was really cool. And I'm really proud to be part of that organization. And those guys would, you know, really, step up and, and, and support me in the ways that they did. Mark, just so much fun. I really appreciate doing this. And Mark, if you would ever come back and you have an ongoing invitation for a, a third appearance, I just love to chat with you about your LA Raiders football days. Some days, I mean, the first interview you had with me, we chatted on a little bit, but I just love to uh -huh. have you back. Just talk about your Raiders days, but congratulations so much on your Mount Everest experience. And uh, thank you for coming back on, on sports untold and uh, all the best. You and I will be in touch. Right on. Thank you so much, Paul. You too. All the best, Mark. Thanks. Okay. Yeah.